our gospel lesson this morning uh, comes after a very long answer given by Jesus to his disciples of a rather simple, short question. What's it going to be like at the end? What are the end times going to be like, Jesus? And after giving a couple parables about what it's going to look like, after telling them that nobody except God the Father knows when that's going to take place, uh, he tells them more about the end. Here in Matthew chapter 25, we'll read verse 31 through the end of the chapter. Jesus speaking to his disciples said this, When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate the people one from another as a sheep separates, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in, or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? The king will reply, Truly, I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes, and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison, and you did not look after me. They will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or in need of clothes or sick or in prison and did not help you? He will reply, truly, I tell you, whatever you did not do, For one of the least of these you did not do for me. Then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. This is the gospel of our Lord. Lord, may these words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Very often I stand up here and I encourage you. I mean, very often I stand up here and I encourage you from Scripture. I try to inspire you using the Scriptures to go. To go and share your faith. I do that often. But very often, I know that you don't. Very often, I know that you don't share your faith. And I want you to know that very often, I don't share my faith either. And there might be many reasons why you don't share your faith. There might be 
a variety of reasons why we all don't share our faith, but there is one very, very simple reason why we don't share our faith. It's because it's hard. It's hard to do. And let me just be very clear about what I mean about that. It is hard to share your faith, not because the gospel is some really difficult technical thing that only intelligent people understand. It's not because you have some sort of knowledge gap that disallows you to go and share the gospel. No, when I say it's hard to share your faith, what I'm talking about is the fact that it is difficult to share a message that is countercultural. It's difficult, it's hard to share a message that you know isn't really well accepted amongst all your peers. It might make you a little unpopular. I mean, there is a reason that I'm not just going to walk into Christmas parties with people that I know some well and some I don't well and just start talking about how my faith informs my views on marriage, how my faith informs my views on gender, how my faith informs my view on issues of life and death. We won't even bring up the gospel at Christmas or Thanksgiving sometimes because it can be offensive. It can be offensive to tell people how they are saved by God's pure grace. No works, no accomplishments of their own, but just his love. Sharing your faith, it's hard. Hopefully you know what I mean when I say that. But can I tell you something that is especially hard for me to share about my faith? It's hell. It's very difficult for me to talk about hell. And maybe it is for you as well. But hell is real. Hell is really horrible. But you and I need to talk about hell. And in fact, that's what we're going to talk about today. Now, some of you are probably sitting there going, yes, preach on, preacher, more fire and brimstone. That's what this generation needs. Give them hellfire. Well, if that's you, can I just caution you for just a moment? Because there's some people that are completely turned off to the idea of hell. They completely deny damnation. That hell is even a real thing. I mean, they say that hell cannot be real. The idea of hell is incompatible with the idea of a God who is love. So if your God is love, there can't be eternal punishment. That would only make him a a bloodthirsty monster. Hell can't exist. And if you support a God that is angry, intolerant and cruel because he does send people to hell, well, then that means you are cruel and intolerant. And you want to know what makes sharing your faith hard, especially sharing your faith and how it informs your views on life after death and and hell hard? Is that, yeah, there's some people that don't believe the Bible. There's some extreme atheists that say, no, hell can't exist. But you want to know something? That a lot of people who don't believe in hell, in fact, 42% of Christians don't believe that there's a hell. But hell is real. 
Hell is really horrible. But still, you and I need to talk about hell. And so we're going to do that today. We're going to talk about hell. And in fact, this phrase that's behind me, we're going to unpack it bit by bit. Let's start talking about this first. The idea that hell is real. There are a lot of people that deny its existence, that say, oh, there's something scripture is clear about, like Jesus and heaven. But when it comes to hell, well, scripture's a bit vague. Scripture's a bit ambiguous. It doesn't really say anything about hell. But nothing could be further from the truth. In fact, the Bible says a lot about hell. It uses a lot of different names to describe and talk about hell. It talks about Sheol, Ga'ana. It talks about hell. It talks about the fire and the unquenchable fire. Hades, the abyss. Tartarus, the darkness. The outer darkness, eternal destruction and eternal judgment. It talks about the lake of fire, the second death. And the text that we just read before this calls hell the eternal fire and the eternal punishment. Pick your poison. Pick which synonym or name you want for hell. But the Bible has a lot to say about hell. And whenever it uses these words, it talks about hell being a very specific thing. It talks about hell being this, a permanent separation from God. Permanent separation from the enjoyment of God's grace. If you're following along on the sermon guide, there's a chart that talks about what hell is there. You can fill it in there. Scripture says this in 2 Thessalonians 1. It says, God will punish those who do not know God or obey the gospel of our Lord. They will be punished, how? With everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord. That's hell. Separation from God. It also talks about the fact that hell is eternal. Revelation 20 says, The devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur where the beast and the false prophets have been thrown and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Hell is eternal. It also talks about hell, scripture that is, as a place. Philippians 2 says, At the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And in a little bit, we're going to look at a passage that shows us Jesus went to a place called hell. It also talks about hell being painful. More on this later. But Matthew 13 says, They will be thrown into the fiery furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Both of those things sound painful. Scripture also talks about this, that hell is where unbelieving people go. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. But verse 18 says this, Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stand condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. This is hell. Hell is a place where you are separated from the goodness, the grace, and the glory of God. Hell is a real place that endures for eternity. It's a place of pain, and it's a place of punishment for unbelievers. And you want to know something? If those who, who say that, you know, hell is cruel, and a cruel God who's a bloodthirsty monster made hell, well, if this is all that Scripture said, 
about hell, you want to know something? They'd be absolutely right. But this is not all that Scripture has to say about hell. In fact, every single time that Scripture talks about hell, it talks about it in the context of Christ. It talks about it in the context of the one who made the problem of hell disappear for those who believe in him. Yeah, people who do not believe in the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ go to hell. But Christ went to hell for you. First Peter, we read it earlier. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but he was made alive by the Spirit. After being made alive, he went and he made proclamation to the imprisoned spirits. He went to hell for you. Christ also suffered hell for you. Isaiah 55 says, Surely Jesus took on our pain and bore our suffering. We considered him punished by God, stricken by God and afflicted. Jesus was pierced for our transgression. He was crushed for our iniquities. And the punishment that brought us peace, well, that was on him. We also say Christ prepared not hell, but heaven as a place for you. John 14, 2 and 3. Jesus said, my father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, I would have told you, but I'm going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare first for you, I will come back and take you to be with me. Hell is not eternal life for those who do not believe, but hell, excuse me, heaven is the gift that God gives. John 3.16, for God so loved the world. Heaven, not hell, is God's eternal gift for you. Finally, Christ permanently unites us with Christ. Although there's separation due to sin, Christ, this is First Peter again, Christ also suffered once. For sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. Why? To bring you to God. This is the doctrine of hell. This is what scripture has to say about hell. Yes, scripture clearly talks about hell as a place of eternity, of eternal punishment, away from God. But don't stop there. The complete picture that the Bible gives about hell is this. That Christ went there for you. Christ suffered hell for you. Christ removed the punishment of hell for you. Christ went to prepare a different place for you in heaven. And Christ brings you to God. Listen, you cannot know how much God loves you if you don't understand if you don't realize how much Jesus suffered for you. You cannot know how much Jesus loves you if you don't know how much he suffered for you. Put it this way. Let's say banks weren't as good as they are today and credit cards weren't as protective as they are today. Let's say I could just go out and swipe my card as many times as I wanted and I could just write blank checks like there's no tomorrow. Now let's say one day I decided I'm going to do that. I'm going to go out and I'm just going to rack up a huge debt. I go out and I buy some fancy coffees and some fancy brunches, but I don't stop there. 
I decide to also buy some really fancy clothes. And then I get the idea in my head that I'm going to buy a fancy, expensive car. And not just one. I'm going to buy lots of them. And then I get the idea that I can just use this card to just swipe and buy a house. So I buy not one, but I buy many different houses and big houses. And then I go on a trip, a really expensive trip. And I take all of my family and friends with me. And I just rack up this huge debt. Let's say I come back from this trip. And one of my friends is waiting at my home and says, Hey, Matt, I just want you to know yesterday a bill came in the mail. And I just want you to know I paid it for you. Now, how would you respond? Well, the answer is you don't know how to respond unless you know which bill he took care of. If he just paid for my coffee, I'd probably say, Thanks, pal. But if that friend paid for all of the not hundreds, not thousands, but millions of dollars of debt that I racked up that I could never pay back. Well, then your thanks would be very different. Instead of just a handshake and a thanks, buddy, you would get on your hands and knees in praise and thanks and give him honor for doing what he did for you. You cannot know how much Jesus loves you until you understand how much he suffered for you. And the doctrine of hell, what the Bible has to say about hell, shows you the extent of his love. It demonstrates the depth of God's love for you. The irony with people wanting to get rid of this idea of hell is that they think it's going to make God more loving. It's going to make him seem less true, less less harsh. But the reality is, it does the opposite. Getting rid of hell doesn't make God more loving. It makes him less. Because hell is real. But here's the thing. Although hell is real, Jesus really went there for you. And so you can talk about it. As real as hell is, You have a Savior who really loves you and really paid the debt for all of your sins. And so you can talk about hell because he really went there for you. But that doesn't change the fact that hell's horrible. Hell is a very scary place. And in fact, Scripture talks this way. Matthew chapter 13 calls it a fiery furnace where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. 1 Thessalonians calls it destruction, describes it as labor pains of a pregnant woman that she cannot escape. Sounds horrible. Revelation describes it as, as the people experiencing hell saying this, to the mountains and to the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. Now, hell sounds horrible. In various places, it described it, as we read before, as a a burning lake of sulfur, as fire that cannot be quenched. So it makes sense why why we don't like to talk about hell. It's because hell's horrible. We know it. And I think part of the reason why we don't talk about it to people we know, people we love, is, well, because there's also a sense of fear that the idea of hell impresses on, well, people who know hell. 
people who know God's word. You know what Galatians 5 says. The acts of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissension, factions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. And Paul says this, I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. Hell's horrible. I think about the horribleness, the suffering that is hell. I wonder if some of the reason why we don't talk about hell is because deep down, we know all of those sins, I do. All of those things are things that I do. And all of the horribleness of hell, well, it's something I deserve. And yet, although hell is real, although hell is horrible, you and I still need to talk about hell. And perhaps there's no better way to do that than to look at the way that Jesus talked about it. Can I read to you again a section of the gospel that we just read? In it, Jesus, talking to the sheep and the goats, first the sheep, says this. He says, the king will say to those on his right, believers, sheep, he'll say this, come, you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, you invited me in. I needed clothes, you clothed me. I was sick, you looked after me. I was in prison, you came to visit me. And then the righteous will answer him. I love this part. Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you? Or what? When did we see you thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you in sick? When did we see you in prison? The king will reply, Truly, I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. You want to know what I love about this story that Jesus tells of the sheeps and the goats? I love that the sheep, the believers, are as oblivious, they are as naive, they are as clueless about what's going on in life, about how they are showing love to Christ, and all the ways that they are doing it, just as clueless, in fact, as the goats. And therein, Jesus gives us a really profound point in this gospel lesson. Heaven is not about what you do. Heaven isn't about and isn't for good little boys and girls who go to church, who help serve at the Fredericksburg Food Bank, who join life groups, who come to communion. Heaven isn't for those people. Heaven isn't about and isn't for do-gooders. Heaven isn't even for people who try hard. You know who heaven's for? Heaven's for the people who are clueless. Heaven's for the people who try and who fail over and over again. The gospel is for people who are wandering around this world naive, but people that believe this. Did you catch it? It came at the very beginning. 
The king will say to those on his right, come you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. Jesus is saying, I have loved you with an everlasting love long before you were alive, long before you could even do a good thing. I have covered you. I have covered you with an everlasting love. I have covered you and given you an inheritance since the foundation of the world. I have made you mine. Jesus is saying, I have you covered. You want to know who heaven's for? You want to know what the gospel is about? The message of the gospel is about people who wander through this life clueless, maybe even clueless to how much good they do for Christ because Christ is living in them and through them and he is the one who has them covered since the dawn of creation. (laughs) That's your savior. You know anybody who's afraid? Maybe, maybe you are. You know anyone who's afraid for the end times, for the end of the world? The disciples were. People still today, they are. And in fact, you can do something about that now. Out in Idaho, there's this group called Vivos. And you can go out there and you can buy a bunker that is said to be able to withstand anything. A nuclear attack, any virus, any epidemic, anything that could come and destroy life, you can be safe from it in this bunker. And all it costs you is $35,000. They have 400 different bunkers separated out, connected though, by miles and miles of underground tunnels and tubing that you can buy and have confidence that no matter what happens, you're covered by 500,000 pounds of concrete reinforced steel to keep you safe from whatever hell on earth comes to try to take your life. Did you buy your bunker yet? <laughs> I tell you what, there might be some people who have a lot of confidence about, well, what might come about because they own one of these things. But you have something greater than 500,000 pounds of concrete and reinforced steel and nuclearized protected doors that protects you. You have your Savior Jesus who covers your entire life from before you were even experiencing life. Hell is real. Hell is really horrible. But Jesus covers your entire life, even (laughs) when you're clueless, even when you don't realize it, even when you don't know it, even when you may have forgotten that Jesus covers your entire life. You have a Lord overall who covers you. So you can talk about hell. You ready to talk about hell? Hell is real. Hell is really horrible. But you and I need to talk about hell. So you ready to go home and have conversations about hell with the people that, well, maybe you need to talk about hell with? No? Not quite ready? Well, let me make one more appeal for you to be able to talk about hell is real um, by looking at how Jesus talks about it. You see, Jesus talks about hell in, in a way that I find refreshing. In our gospel lesson for the day, Jesus describes hell and he describes who hell is for in this way. 
Look at verse 41 if you have Matthew chapter 25 open. He says, Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared who? Who's it prepared for? For the devil and his angels. Are you ready to talk about hell? Now I wonder if when we talk about hell in all its realness and all its horribleness, we do so in a way, but we talk about who hell is for. It's not made for you. It's not made for people. Hell, it's for the demons. (laughs) Often, when we talk about sharing our faith and sharing our beliefs, And knowing a thing about the Bible. Well, especially hell, we think, well, I got to tell them what I'm against. Stop drinking, stop smoking, stop gambling, start going to church, start praying, or you're going to hell. And we look at that, we say, well, either I do that and lose all my friends and family, or I just don't say anything. (laughs) Then I keep my friends and my family and (laughs) everything's okay. But let me offer just a little bit of sobering words from Scripture that, that kind of address that conflict. Either being really just a fear monger or being afraid of losing our loved ones or not saying anything. Ezekiel chapter 33 says this, But if the watchman sees the sword coming and does not blow the trumpet to warn the people, and the sword comes and takes someone's life, that person's life will be taken because of their sin. But I will hold the watchmen accountable for their blood. Son of man, I have made you a watchman. Acting like hell doesn't exist isn't going to keep people from hell. Acting like hell isn't real isn't going to just magically bring about the reconciliation of God and man. Let me be blunt. You not talking about hell, if anything, is going to double down on people's chances of going to hell. So what are we going to do? What if we talked about hell? But what if we talked about hell in such a way that we didn't talk about hell and all that heaven is against, but what if we talked about hell in such a way that we told people about the one who provided the answer and the remedy to hell? What if we talk about hell and we talk about the one who went to hell for you? What if we talk about hell in all its realness and all its horribleness, describing that it is a real place for eternity that people who do not believe in Jesus go to, but every single time we talk about hell, we talk about hell in the context of the one who answered hell's biggest problem, who went there for us, who removed the punishment for us, the one who went to hell, Christ Jesus, and suffered hell so we wouldn't have to. What if that's how we talked about hell. You see, you and I have grown up thinking, and maybe this is just me, but oftentimes we think that 
when we talk about beliefs, when we have beliefs, well, we need to, you know, just live our lives and just share our faith. But whatever, what if, excuse me, what if instead of living our lives and sharing our faith, we instead lived our faith and shared our lives? Kind of like Jim. That's what Jim did. At least I think his name was Jim. Because growing up, my parents always called him Y2K Jim. You see, Jim lived across the street. He was an elderly man, long retired. And my family moved across the street in 1997. And for three years, we got to know Jim. And Jim got to know us. And my parents called him Y2K Jim because Jim wasn't just a conspiracy theorist. He wasn't just some online coder who was worried about what would happen to the interwebs when 2000 struck. No, Jim was a believer that the end was coming at the turn of the millennium. Jim was convinced that the year 2000 would mark the end of all things. And Jim shared his beliefs. But he did more than that. He shared his life. He took my dad over to his house and showed him the basement bunker that he created. And as much as my brother and I wanted to go see it, we weren't allowed to. Jim would bring over to our house cans of food and bread to make sure we were ready when 2000 came about. Jim got the whole block prepared, bringing them bread and canned goods. And when we were outside playing in the snow in December, before December 31st, Jim asked me and my brother, are you guys ready? Are your parents getting ready for the end times? What if we were like Jim? What if we were as convinced? What if we believed what we believe about the end times and believed it and shared it in the way Jim did. Not just, you know, sharing our faith in what we believe, but actually living and sharing our lives. What if we who, well, have more confidence in what is to come because, yeah, hell is real and Jesus really went there for us, shared that part of our lives with people. What if we shared all of the horribleness of hell, but shared it in such a way because we know that we were covered more than having a basement bunker. We had Jesus who covered our entire lives and we just didn't share that belief. We shared how that affects our entire lives. Then I think we'd be able to talk about hell and people would know that there is a place for them. Amen.